Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirty and gritty because I'm listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Love and Spoonful for writing and performing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Hello, everyone. I'm John McAdam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling, the only wicked good podcast out there. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast. On the day that this comes out, it is the beginning of Memorial Day weekend, which means it is unofficially the start of summer, and I am very happy. I don't care what the calendar says. September 20th, when there's leaves on the trees are turning weird colors, it's not summer. When the pool is open, it's summer, and that's Memorial Day weekend. Before we get rolling on this, I want to invite everyone to follow me on Twitter, it's John McAdam. Just just put in that search and follow the guys who are have followed the guy who has guys chair fighting in his avatar. Also, you want to join the Facebook group this week, especially if you're not in. This is the week to join because we're going to be discussing a link that you can a link to a magazine that you can follow get on the Facebook group. We also have really good conversations. Just today, we were talking about who the best Russians in wrestling were. And you know this is an old-school podcast slash Facebook group, if almost unanimously. As a matter of fact, I think it was unanimous that Ivan Koloff was voted the best one. I mean, I don't think Nikita, who was really good, even got a single vote. Uh, wrestling, what a magical place. If back in the 80s, if you were a, a citizen of the USSR and you wanted to come to the United States, no way. I don't care if you're a doctor. They didn't care if you were a scientist you weren't getting in here unless you were an evil russian professional wrestler who made your bad intentions known um before we get going again i want to thank mark roland and lance o'donnell for donating to the show if you want to donate you can paypal me at pro wrestling archives at gmail.com no amount is too small as, as a thank you certainly no amount is too large and with that this show was originally going to be about my my the 40th anniversary of the first show i attended at the boston garden and it was main event was bruno sammartino versus killer khan it was just a great night for me i was a little bit surprised by frankly how slow paced some of the wrestling was it was a little slower than it went in my imagination but it was my first ever big show so i'm throwing myself a birthday party for that on may 30th and then there just wasn't enough meat on that bone to get an hour through but we're gonna have more than enough from what we're talking about, but I'd like to start by by bringing on a guest who is, this is his maiden voyage on Stick to Wrestling, Neil Shockett. Neil, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. All right. We are going to be talking about the July 1986 uh, version of the Wrestling Eye magazine. Uh, I want to thank Wrestling Scans for putting this up. They have a bunch of good stuff. I recommend it. Check them out. Uh, cover of the magazine is Brutus Beefcake, which we weren't exactly used to, Neil. No, no, but I love him anyway. Yeah, he, he, you know, he was a a minor star, not really a big star, but you know what? It's the magazine business. It, I guess it all depends on who you can get a picture of. Yeah. And 
he was on TV all the time, so it just makes sense. Yeah, and I think by this point, by the time the magazine came out, he had lost the tag team championships with Greg Valentine. But I, I'll bet by the time it was pr- when it was printed, he was still champion. So you've got, I guess, when you think about it, he's a pretty major star. Yeah, anybody that was in the WWF that was winning almost every week was a major star at that point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also on the cover is a picture of a bloodied Rick McGraw being uh, helped out by Brad Rangins and also, unfortunately, by Buck Zumhoff. Is that, is that McGraw or Martell? That, that is Rick Martell. Okay, yeah. All right. <laughs> but but it, it's just sad that it had to be Buck Zumhoff, you know, helping him out. <laughs> More on... <laughs> More on Buck Zumhoff later. Then we have the, the life of times, the life and times of Rick McGraw, who had recently passed at this point. Right. I, I liked McGraw because he was just like this guy that was like, he looked really tough. He was small. You knew he was not going to win most of the time, but you just wanted him, wanted him to. And if you saw him live, he was, I just remember I saw him live the first time. I can't remember. I think it was around 1980. And he like press slam King Kong Bundy and Bundy, and I was like, "Oh my god!" He, well, rem- Chris Canyon. Yeah, he was Chris Cran- Canyon at the time. I remember that it was on. I don't remember if it was on Championship, but I think it was on All Star Wrestling. And I saw that. And, and McGraw was one of those guys who you, who you always said to yourself, like he's got to be five seven, five eight, and you're like, if this guy was four inches taller, he would be a major star. He would be in a main event in any arena. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Oh, let me see. What else can I do with with this? Well, uh, first thing I want to talk about is going down a little bit. Little bit. We have an editorial by what's the guy's name? Mike Ballou. Right. And when I first read this, I was like really unhappy because I felt like I was being lied to. But then I thought about it. Let me tell you what Mike has to say. In an earlier editorial, we supported the idea of using smaller wrestlers in addition to the current crop of heavyweights. Wrestling Eye believes the lighter divisions would at least curb the harmful use of steroids, a drug to increase muscular density. Many doctors have issued warnings of the health hazards associated with steroid use. The steroid side effects include liver and kidney damage, excessive red blood cells, impotence, don't want that, complications of the heart and cancerous tumors wrestlers who use steroids are usually looking for an edge in power and size however medical studies have shown that steroids do not increase strength or bulk bullshit the weight gain is simply a retention of water not muscle yeah right pro and amateur wrestlers as well as would-be grapplers we urge you not to use these or any other non-prescribed drugs. Where do I begin? I'm, my first take on this deal was I thought Mike was lying to me because they don't just make you retain water. It's ridiculous. I, I'd known that for like five or six years before reading it. And then I thought about it. I'm like, Mike was probably just given bad information. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That steroids just, you know, cause you to retain water in your muscles, which is completely ridiculous. And I knew it. And maybe he maybe he just got bad information. I think he did. Well, at that point in time, I didn't even think about steroids. And I remember this magazine 
And um, I just thought that like all these guys are just muscular. I didn't even, I, I never even thought about steroids in my life at that point. It's funny. Wrestling. Eye was really different than the after magazines. Cause the, because the after magazines would not touch a subject like this. No, they were, they were more about the, the story that was on TV and they made up their own little stories that went along and, you know, that went along with what was on TV and they just, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about anything that was real. No, the, the after magazines, they were in the business to enhance the fantasy of what you were seeing on TV, whereas wrestling eye, and we'll talk more about this in a minute. They were, you know, more newsworthy. They, they didn't come right out and say that, you know, wrestling was predetermined or anything like that, but they, they gave you real information that the after magazines just stayed away from. Well, see, that's what I loved about wrestling. Eye. it was like, it was, re- well, we don't know how true all of it was, but it was a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And also it was, you know, what I, I liked also besides wrestling, I was the rings magazine that always had the reports of like every booking office in the country. And I would just sit there and in like elementary school and junior high and read this stuff. And I had no idea, you know, like there were all these little booking offices and like this guy's coming in, that guy's going out, this guy's been losing a lot. And I'm like, wow, I didn't realize this was such a big business and everybody was all over the place. I agree with you. They would tell you, they would give you the complete roster of every promotion out there, whether it be a promotion as big as the New York office or as small as like the Vancouver office. Yeah. And I remember like Nova Scotia, Leo Burke. And I'm like, who is this guy? You know? Yeah. Yeah, Stuff that would be totally untouched by the aftermath. You're right. I mean, they would report on the promotion up in Nova Scotia, which was, you know, yeah. you were either just starting out or you were at the dead end of the line if you were working up there. Right. And you're like, what, what is this? <laughs> Nova Scotia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved it. All right. And so we have an article written by Ed Gurria, who I knew back in the 80s. And in the article, it says, and this is, again, something the aftermaths would never do. Brutus Beefcake began life as one Edward Leslie and was brought into wrestling by way of the Briscoe brothers. Beefcake started in Memphis under the name Ed Boulder to keep him from getting lonely. I don't know what that means. He was given a brother in the form of Terry the Hulk Boulder, now known as Hulk Hogan. The Boulder brothers worked well enough, but didn't exactly make the ring spots quiver with anticipation. After a short stay in Memphis, Terry quit the act to work in the WWF as Hulk Hogan and Ed toured Mid-South as Ed Dizzy Hogan. Once again, stuff that the after magazines would never touch, even if you changed your name, even if you did something as obvious as Buddy Roberts is now Dale Valentine, it was just like, boom, they wouldn't say anything. Well, I remember going to the matches and everybody would say, that's Hulk Hogan's little brother. That's Hulk Hogan's little brother. I'm like, no. They're not really brothers. They're just friends, and he got a job because of Hogan. And where where did you grow up watching wrestling? Baltimore. Nice. Yeah, I had a great I, – I had the best childhood. See, I grew up I, – I was born in 66. I got into wrestling around 75, 76. Just by chance, my older brother was watching it on TV. And I'm like, look at this guy. He's killing this other guy. And I was like, I was like totally into it. Right. And I remember Chief J Strombo came out and my brother goes, now this guy's really good. You're going to love him. And then 
uh, I would say like the next week was a Saturday because it was every Saturday at 4 p.m. I go to my dad's store. My dad had a drug store. And I walked in there, and my brother was with me. He was three years older. And I saw all these wrestling magazines. And I just, and we were allowed to pretty much take what we wanted from the store, especially Flintstones vitamins. I would eat them in the store and just, like, you know, put them back on the shelf. But <laughs> when I did that. Anyway, I saw these magazines, and I grabbed every one of them. And, and I, like, put them in a bag. I'm taking these home. And I'm reading them, and I'm like, what the hell is an O. Anderson, you know? And it's like. All these guys and my brother's like, oh, that guy's really good. Like he had any idea. And I'm just like reading these magazines and I'm like, oh my God, this is like the greatest thing in the world. And I was so hooked at that point. And I just like every month, every week that my dad got magazines and on Wednesday, I would call up, what'd you get? What'd you get? And I would make them read the ratings to me. It was like, the greatest <laughs> thing. he would read them all, man. And I'm like, well, who's the NWA champion? And he's like, it's Harley Race. Well, who's number one? Who's number one? And he's like, Dusty Rhodes. And he's also number three in the WWF. I'm like, how the hell is he doing that? But it was like, I was so happy. Best times. It really is. And the, the fact that your dad owned a drugstore, like you don't have that anymore. And, and it sucks. And I did the same thing. Ole Anderson, Steve Kearn. How do I yeah. know? I still call Steve Kern, Steve Kearn in my head. <laughs> and then I have a friend who calls Bruiser Brody, Bruiser Brody. He still reads it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, I mean, they, they start giving you – uh, let me go back a little ways, too. Like, from my perspective, I was 20 years old when this magazine came out, and I had a job. And if I would go to the, the drugstore – not the drugstore, the magazine store uh, a couple of towns over in Merrimack, New Hampshire, because they got everything a little bit earlier and days counted to me. I wanted these, these magazines. And I was working, and I had disposable income, and I just bought them all. You wanted everything. I had a friend. Uh, he was friends with my older, my oldest brother, who's six years older than me. That and this guy lived around the corner, and he gave me two big cardboard boxes full of magazines from the '60s and '70s. And I had all these, like, I mean, back when, back when, um, in in uh, the Wrestler magazine before it was called What's Happening. You know, yep. the blab, it was, here's what's happening, baby. I remember and, that. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, look at that. He had a different name back then. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. And he gave me all these magazines and I was like, so into it. I couldn't stop reading them. Of course, I traded them for somebody that took pictures like really close at the matches, like an idiot, you know, like a picture of Ken Patera and Pat Patterson up close is worth these magazines. Ugh. But I wanted something different. But I had so many, and then I would see the back of the aftermags or in the middle, wherever it was, where you could order so many magazines, and it would take four to six weeks for delivery. And, man, I waited and waited and waited, and they all came in. Each magazine was in a, I think it was like in a separate envelope. And I must have had about 50 magazines, you know, that I ordered from, like, the early to mid-70s. And for a dollar a piece, I wish I still had those magazines. I did everything that you did. You and I are, are talking the same language, and it's yep. called crazy. I, ha at one point, probably before I even turned 15, I had every back issue of the After Magazines, except for the ones that cost like $5 each. I wasn't right. bothering with them. But yeah, they, it was tw $20 for 20 magazines, 
I think shipping was included. It, it must have been. And yeah, I would just send them 20 bucks uh, every now and then until there was nothing left to buy. And then I'll tell you the greatest thing ever. So it's like 1983. And my dad goes to me, what wrestling magazines do you want? And I start telling him and he says, all right, I got a better idea. We're going to call him the distributor. I'm going to give you the number. Here's my account number. And you just tell him every wrestling magazine that you want every week that comes out. And I swear my dad was bringing home about eight or nine magazines a week. I was the happiest kid in the world. That was the greatest. The sound you heard in the background was my jaw hitting the floor. You were living the dream, dude. No, I thought that was my wife eating some candy or something. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm joshing. Uh, yeah, okay. That was the, the great, that was such a great time. It really was. I mean, and you know, we all knew, or at least I knew that, you know, what wrestling was, but I didn't know the details. Like I, I know when I see a magic trick, it's just a trick, but now, I mean, once you got the observer, you knew how the trick was, was going. But like I, at this point in my life, I was just enjoying the magic. Yeah. And I remember, I remember like the first time I really kind of learned what was like going on backstage. Yeah. Kind of. Well, I kind of did, but I didn't get everything. I, in 1984, in 1984, I just graduated high school, June, uh, June of 84. And I'm walking in the mall near my house in, in Baltimore, Maryland, not in the city, but the county. Yeah. And I'm in this mall. It's a great mall. And I like, I look over and I see Lord Alfred Hayes. And I'm like, what? What the hell is Lord Alfred Hayes doing here? And then he's just like walking around and I'm like, uh, hello, your lordship. <laughs> and he, yeah. And he was like, you know, he could barely walk. He was so his knees were all messed up and he could barely walk. And he said to me, like, why don't you come over here and join me? And he's like in this in the little food court and we're sitting there for probably about four hours talking wrestling. He's just sitting there and he's telling me how much he loves Sergeant Slaughter, how much he loves J.J. Dillon. And he's telling me how, like, you know, what's going on, what's going on. And, and this went on for, like, I guess it was, like, two or three years. I would I would go to the mall just to see him. I knew he would be there because he, they, they filmed um, what, that TNT show. Yes, right that's around what he was corner. doing there. Yeah, right around the corner from the mall. He drove a big blue, like, Lincoln Continental with Connecticut license plates. It was like an old car from the 1979. And I sat there with him, and, he, and he's like, uh, here's some money. Could you go up there and get me a cup of coffee? And I go, don't you want tea? And he goes, I hate tea. And I, I go up there and I get him coffee. And we just sat there and we talked wrestling. And he go, and he's in the Sun paper, which was our local newspaper. He sees he sees the ratings and he sees the NWA ratings, number one contender. And, and believe me, the newspaper knows nothing about wrestling. And I have no idea where they got their ratings from. But it said. Number one contender, like, and this is like 86 at this point, and it says, beautiful Bobby Eaton. And he goes, what the hell is, is Bobby Eaton doing as number one? And he was just like, he was just like so, he was like laughing his ass off for about 15 minutes. And he was like the greatest guy. He would tell you anything. Oh, wow. He would, he would let you peek behind the curtain or whatever it's oh, yeah. called. Yeah, he said he said he said that Bob Backlund was a big whiner. And, wow. 
I started laughing. He goes, Hulk Hogan's such a bigger box office. He's, it's, it was the way to go. He said Dusty was a, a manipulator. and um, Which I've heard. Yeah. And he said, he's, he just like, he, I, I said, what about Giles the Fish Poison? And he started cracking up because that's just the name I saw. He's a nice guy. He's like, Giles is a nice guy. Like he knew, he knew all this stuff. I for, I should have asked him about everybody's favorite, the Hangman, but I forgot. But he was like the nicest guy. He was so cool. And then my mom saw him. She, he's walking in the mall. My mom saw him walking around the food court, and he didn't have a place to sit down to eat. My mom's like, "Well, what are you his lordship?" And he says, "Yes." And my mom goes, "I'm Neil's. I'm Neil's mom." And he goes, "Oh, how you doing?" And my mom invites him over for Thanksgiving, but. He was going, it was either to Slaughter's house or to his daughter's house. Yeah. You, you know, you, you solved a mystery for me just then, because I wondered, like you say, okay, Lord Alfred Hayes was in Baltimore and I added it up. I'm like, you know what? I bet he lives in Baltimore because he does the TNT show every week. And then I'm like, wait a minute. He also does post-production. You know, he does stuff on TV, uh, for their championship wrestling show. And I'm like, Oh, he probably does that in Baltimore, but no, he probably just did the drive from Connecticut to Baltimore once a week. Now he lived in Baltimore. They had a, they had a place. No a, way. Yeah. They had a place and it was a scary, it was in a little scary, uh, apartment complex in Owens mills. That's still there today called Morningside Heights. And you wouldn't want to go there now. <laughs> I'm not kidding, but Unless you want to go to the food truck that's in the gas station out front. My son, uh, Julian, loves it. But it's not a safe place now where he lived. And I would, I would, um, I would see him so often, and he was such a cool dude. I mean, there's nothing better, better than seeing Lord Alfred Hayes, but he lived there. He was there all the time. He was in that mall like, almost every night. He was like this lonely, kind of broken-down guy, but he was... But when you talk to him about the old days, he loved it. He loved talking. He was such a great, I loved him. He was a great guy. Big influence on me. I have heard nothing but good things about Lord Alfred Hayes, like, you know, from Cauliflower Alley to people who, who knew him. I mean, he, he was a guy, very rarely is someone universally beloved in wrestling. Everyone's got their enemies. It's not one big happy family. I, I think Hayes and IQ, boy, there's a couple of other people that just had no enemies, but Hayes was one of them. He told me, I said, how did you end up in the WWF? I said, I think the first time I saw you was when Backlund lost the belt in an interview. And you said, in a nutshell, uh, Bob and or something. And, and Bob Backlund was crying. But I, um, <laughs> he said that Lanz, they were up in Montreal on Blackjack Lanz, Alonza like landed on him on his legs and he knew he was done. He couldn't work ever again. And then he, uh, he met Vince through slaughter and slaughter was, I mean, slaughter was like his, one of his closest friends because they went back so long since, you know, the super destroyer deal. Yep. Uh, and he said this and, and slaughter was like, why don't you come down here to where I'll talk to Vince. And I, I mean, I'm just remembering off the top of my head, that's how he got the, the job in WWF. So. I, I mean, that, that also solves a mystery to, to me because um, 
it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, Slaughter has a, a tr- real a direct connection to Vince, and yeah, they work together a lot in the AWA. They must have been they must have been in the car together every night. Well, I can tell you another thing. He told me how Mr. T, when when the, when Mr. T got fired from the WWF, that David Schultz. He, this is what he said. Okay. He said David Schultz was chasing him around the dressing room, wanting to beat the crap out of him. And Mr. T was like, get this guy away from me. Get this guy away from me. So, yeah, the that is a true story. Uh, Dr. D was trying to kind of work his way into the WrestleMania main event, whether taking Paul Orndorff's place or having Schultz, Piper and Snuka. It should be Schultz, Piper and Orndorff against Snuka, Mr. T and uh, Hulk Hogan. And yeah, that, that story has been around, but I, I've definitely heard that, that, you know, and Mr. T got the crap scared out of him because he was ready to drop out of WrestleMania. And that would have been such a disaster for the WWF. I mean, like potentially bankrupting the WWF level of disaster. Right. And Dr. D David Schultz, he was like blacklisted by everybody. And then I saw him in cauliflower alley, uh, two years ago and boy, he was like the most bitter person ever. And I can't blame him in a way. You know, I I don't think he was blacklisted. I, I really don't. I think, um, I mean, you know, why would Crockett not hire him because Vince McMahon wants him blacklisted? That, that you know, why would Bill Watts do that? It doesn't make any sense. I attended. Um, I, I think I've told the sh- story on the show before. Forgive me if I have, but if I if I did, it was years ago. Uh, um, uh, an ICW show in Bulrica, Massachusetts at an ice arena and Schultz was on the show and Schultz was, he was so out of control on the show. He had everyone, everyone in the audience so scared that he couldn't get heat. And I know Memphis brought him in, in 1985 and I heard there were, there were problems. So it sounds like it wasn't like he was blackballed. Just, you know, Watson Crockett decided to avoid the guy. Yeah. He scared everybody. But I'll tell you, at the Cauliflower Alley, he's up there, and he's a, he's on the microphone. He's the Lifetime Achievement Award, the whole deal. And um, Jerry Lawler sitting at the table with Tony Gurria, and I think Jim Ross, and Haku, and Gesundheit, and what's the other <laughs> guy's name? Uh, the Barbarian. And, and he's just like, Jerry, where were you when I needed you? You couldn't have helped me out. You couldn't have helped me out. You knew I was broke. You knew I was starving. And Jerry's just sitting there. The whole place was quiet. And he, a lot of people walked out. He went on and on for like probably about 25 minutes. I went up to my room and changed and came back. <laughs> it was like I couldn't. It was too much. It was like totally overboard. And then like, I, I mean, other than that, I mean, I said hi to him and everything. But his wife, she, she's nodding her head up and down. Yeah, yeah. But like it was, it it definitely made the whole thing tense, really tense. And Doctor D had a, a ways of making people uncomfortable, and in, in a way, his career, the way it ended, was kind of sad because I mean, he was—I don't have it right in front of me—but he, I think, he was twenty-nine years or thirty years old when the when the Mister T thing happened, and he got fired, and he was out of the business, and. Like I said, I'm I'm a little bit surprised that Watts didn't bring him in because he seems like a Watts kind of guy, but it never happened. Yeah, he was a scary dude. I wouldn't. He's scary now. I looked at him. He's almost seventy, and I know he could kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like looking at him, like, uh, uh, yes, Mr. Schultz, how you doing? I mean, Doctor Schultz. 
<laughs> no, he, I know he got a shot in Memphis in 85, so I'm not sure what he, he's doing dressing down Jerry Lawler 35 years later or whenever it was. Lawler just sat there and he just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, he didn't get up and like, you know, but it was it was really, I thought it was like really not nice. No, it it sounds like, I mean, we don't have a cauliflower alley convention as a means for Dr. D. David Schultz to, uh, <laughs> to, to uh, what's the word I'm looking for, to, what did Costanzi's, uh, airing of the grievances, thank you. Right, right. <laughs> I can tell you this, I just thank God that, uh, what's his name, uh, my good buddy from L.A., the Lucha, our good friend, Vandal is there. Because he just made everything feel better again. He brought love back to the room just by being there. That, that's that's really cool. When did you start going to rest, little wrestling matches live in Baltimore? My first card was probably 78. And I begged my dad for tickets. And, and at the Baltimore Civic Center was, you know, one of the weirdest places to see wrestling. And I remember, like, the corner sections had these, like, they they had like they were like upside down triangles. Like the first row was one seat, the second row was three seats, the fourth row was like five seats in the upper deck. And my dad got tickets in the upper deck because that was all that was available. So we were like in the fifth row, and I just remember this guy in the first row just sitting there by himself. And I was like, why don't you come up here and sit with us? And I'm like this little kid. And the main event was Backlund versus Graham. But Graham had 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 lost the belt one month before, in the at the Garden, so, and that was in the middle of the card. I remember I saw the Golden Terror, Tarak, uh, uh, what's his name, Fuji and Tanaka versus Gurian Zabisco, Arion beat Strongbow, and I remember a, a guy that was in the first match, Pete Johnson. I remember him. Yeah. And 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 it was just so cool to be there. I was like, oh my god, this is like the greatest night. I love this. I'm going every month, you know. <laughs> and we did. I went every month, like till like 1985. I I, I went, and at the end of '85, and they stopped coming like every month. And WC, I mean NWA, came in Georgia in '84, and I was like bored with WWF live. It got really bad live. Worse than it ever was. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean 84, 85, when they did the expansion, like before that, the arena matches were generally competitive. You know, you had most of the matches, you weren't quite sure who was going to win. 84, 85, they changed that formula. It was like, you know, always a top star against a middle of the card guy. And then you'd have Hulk Hogan in the main event, and you knew Hogan was going to win. Right. Like, like when I went off through the, you know, the late 70s and early 80s, the opening match was like Angelo Gomez versus Johnny Rods. Next match would be like Steve King versus Mike Masters. And then the third match would be similar. The fourth match would be similar. And they would have like uh, Hangman versus Dominic DiNucci, you know. And then, the, then they would have, there would be like seven matches on the card. Five of them would basically be like completely boring or four of them, but like you didn't care. And now and nowadays, I would love to be at those cards compared to what's now. But that's just me. 
No, I mean, I understand it too. I mean, we, I, I like the current product, but we don't have that connection to it the way that we did growing up. I mean, you know, it, it, it was fresh out of the box and I was someone who, you know, opening match at, I mean, literally, whether it be in the Boston Garden or the Chestnut Street Gym in Nashua, if you have Steve King going up against Frank Williams, like, I'm excited. I don't know who's going to win, and I care about who's going to win. Yeah, and you know Steve King was going to win. But here's the craziest thing, right? So we had Baltimore um, had matches, like, once a month, and the Cap Center had matches once a month. And then in Baltimore, we ended up with the NWA coming with the Georgia thing. And then when that blew up, it well, blew down, really, fell apart. It became that pro wrestling USA. And I remember they got on the microphone. We're sorry tonight. The AWA wrestlers were in a are in a snowstorm and will not be appearing tonight. Only NWA star. Everybody started cheering. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wanted to see the AWA. And it was like, we were like, all right. And they put together like, you know, just matches at the last minute, but it was great. And you could go outside and see them all coming in. That was like the coolest thing ever. I remember doing stuff like that. <laughs> you know, standing by the garage near the Boston Garden and watching the guys come in. I, I guilty as charged. I did it. I remember Cornette and Eaton and Condry came in and Condry was wearing shorts that were almost as short as his trunks. And he had on that, he had on one of those, um, the, uh, what do we call them? The, not the do-rag, but you know, the, the thing he wore around his neck, you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. The, yeah. The bandana, the bandana. <laughs> he came in with a bandana around his neck and short little gym shorts. And I'm like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, man, what the hell? And then like, they came in and like, everybody's like booing them. But I'm like, Whoa, these guys are still bigger than life to me. You know? And I remember there was a car that was always parked outside and the license plate, it was a Lincoln Continental. I think it was black. And the license plate said WWF dash NWA. And I don't know if you ever heard about that car. No. Every month. And some girl next to me goes, hey, that must be Magnum TA's car. It's a doozy. You know, if they're real strong Baltimore accent, it's a doozy. (laughs) And I'm like, no, it's not. And then I figured out who it was. It was that guy that stopped the match when What's-His-Face was bleeding, Iannucci. Remember that guy, Ray Iannucci, when Luger was bleeding? Yeah, I, I totally remember that finish. That was, <laughs> that, was, that was his car. No wonder the AWA didn't show up. It wasn't on the license plate. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. First, the first time I, I ever really met like a big-time wrestler, you know, it's funny. I go into the, the Marriott, I think it was. And, you know, all the, all the good guys, Dusty Rhodes, the Rock and Roll Express, you know, they, they, Nikita Koloff, this is an 87. They couldn't get away from the fans quickly enough. And in the lobby, signing autographs, taking pictures, et cetera, was Jim Cornette, Stan Lane, and Bobby Eaton, the, 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 the horrible, evil, bad guys. And, yeah, this was in Baltimore. Right. So, I mean, did you have, a, did you get to interact with the wrestlers at all? Like, uh, you know, hanging out at the Marriott or anything like that? Well, the first time I met a pro wrestler was when I was in ninth, the summer after ninth grade going into 10th grade. And Bruno Sammartino was in town at the, at the Cap Center to fight Zabisco. 
during their feud. And they had Bruno Sammartino night at Free State Raceway, the horse races. And my dad and I went and I we got there late. We had it was my grandmother had passed away and we had to be home until a certain time. Then we got in the car, went there. They had meatball subs, Bruno's meatball subs for sale. Oh, but nice. I, I didn't get one. I didn't want that. But anyway, I saw Bruno right away. He was done his appearance. And he was coming down the elevator. And I just ran up to him and I just said, Bruno. And he's <laughs> like, he's like, how you doing? How you doing? It's nice to meet you. And I'm like, oh, happy and everything. And he's like, let me shine the autograph for you, son. You came all the way down here. And he was so nice. I mean, what a nice guy. And that was the first guy I met, right? And then the second guy I met was was in 84 when it was Zabisco in Baltimore to go against David Sammartino at an NWA event. Yet neither one of them at the time were in the NWA. Right, well, David right. was, but Bruno wasn't, I think. So I go to the, he's on a radio station. Zabisco's on a radio station that's like fairly close to my house. So my friend and got my friend and I we drive up there and I got my main that book main event by Roberta Morgan. And I remember that. Yeah, I got two copies. But anyway, <laughs> I went up to him and as he came out and like Phil Wood was the sports guy that had him on. He's like, "Well, you drove all this way. Uh, when we come out, you can get his autograph." And I got his autograph. I was all happy and driving down Reister's Town Road, which is like a big road where the station was. He's on the left side with with uh, Gary Juster driving him, and I'm on the right side, and I'm like trying to keep up with him because I had just got my license or whatever, and I just wanted to see Zabisco more. And he's smoking a cigarette, having a great time in the car. But it was like the, he was a nice guy. He's like, this is an old picture of me, and, uh, with him with a mustache in there. I remember, I remember that Larry Zabisco caterpillar mustache look. <laughs> yeah, but he was so nice. What a guy. And then I met him. At, I met him at FanFest, and he was super friendly. A long time ago, Dave Meltzer told me, you know, if you meet a wrestler and he's not super nice or whatever, just bear in mind that he might be having the worst day of his life, and you just caught him at the wrong moment. I think both Bruno and Zabisco. I think I caught them just on bad days because I've heard so many good Bruno San Martino stories. And when I was around him, I thought he was kind of grouchy. But like I said, he could have just been having a really bad day. He could have gotten, he might have just gotten some really bad news. Well, I remember when I met, this is, I met Jerry Briscoe, Sergeant Slaughter, and Tim White at the Cauliflower Alley. They're all three sitting at a bar. And and uh, I'm standing behind Jerry Briscoe, and I'm like, hi, he wouldn't turn around, made like he didn't hear me, made like he didn't see me or anything. But Tim White is next to him. He's making like he's talking to Tim White, but Tim White's talking to us. And I was <laughs> like, I was like, okay. But Slaughter was like so nice. I'll tell you the nicest guy I ever met was uh, that guy, Paul Lee. You know him? Paul Lee. What, did he work Smoky Mountain? I think he might have. The blonde haired guy that does yeah. the player thing. That guy. Let me tell you about Paul Lee. You know, he gets a bad rap about everything, you know, with the whole Ric Flair thing. But Ric Flair gives him his blessing and whatnot. But we met him, his wife, his kids at the at the Cauliflower Alley. And he is the friendliest, nicest guy. He, there's no attitude, no, no, nothing with him. He's just a regular dude. 
You know, he's funny. He's just a good guy. You, you know, know that, go ahead. No, that was it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the guys in the business who are like Paul Lee. Okay, they're they're not big names or anything like that, but they walk around like they're goddamn Ric Flair or Hulk Hogan. I have personally witnessed this. And then you have some guys like Paul Lee who are just you know cool guys. Yeah, like he walks around like he's hot, like he's the biggest thing ever. But when you talk to him, he's completely not. You know. I yeah. think the strangest guy I ever met was uh, Rock Riddle. Rock Riddle? I haven't thought of that name in ages. Now, where were you? At the Cauliflower Alley. Okay, now tell me a little bit about Rock Riddle. He's just like, he's a real character. And like, he freaked my wife and I out because, you know, he's all about being this actor. He's all about acting and acting and acting. The guy lives in his character, dresses up, you know, like he's going out to the ring or whatever. And he has on like the crazy out the leopard skin and all that stuff, uh, sports jacket. And he goes, Let me tell you something. It's all about the face. Look at my face. Look at my deranged face. And he makes this face and he doesn't break it for like 30 seconds. And my wife and I are like, Oh my <laughs> God, this guy's like completely insane. But he was so nice. But he- here's the good story you like. All right. I was in BWI Airport. This is around 86. And the, I'm picking up my sister. She's flying in from Mich- from Detroit, Michigan. And we're waiting for her to come up. All of a sudden, she comes out. She comes out early. I don't know what the deal was. But we go down to the baggage claim. At baggage claim, my sister goes to me. There were, I think there were pro wrestlers on my, my plane. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, ooh. So we're sitting there. And all of a sudden, I see the Rougeau brothers, the Bulldogs, um, uh, I didn't see Hogan. I probably, I might've seen beefcake. I saw George animal steel, Ken Patera, all the guys that were, maybe it was 87, 88, maybe, but it was all those guys. And I said, hi, Mr. Patera. And he's a good guy at that point. He just looks at me like he just wants to rip my head off and, you know, down my neck. And I'm like, Eesh. and then all of a sudden I hear, Ugh. and I turn around and it's George Animal Steel, and he's winking at me, and, he, and he's like the coolest dude. But and that was like a big thrill. All these people were on the plane with my sister, and she's like, oh, my God, look at all these guys. It was awesome. Yeah, Hogan, I wonder if Hogan flew commercial or not. I'm, I'm inclined to think he didn't, but, you know, I mean, he was such a big star at that time. Even if you stick him in first class, you've got to just, you're going to have a distraction on your hands. I remember, I guess it was in 81, he walked into the Baltimore Civic Center with, um, with, with uh, what's his name, uh, the Moondogs. At that point, all right, it was Spike, it was Spike, Spike and, the, and uh, Rex, Rex, Rex and Rex Spot. And Spot. He, Rex and Spot. It was after What's-His-Face got kicked out. And he's like walking in with them. And he has this big yellow sports jacket on, kind of like a Howard Baum sports jacket. And he's like walking by me. And I'm like, oh, my God, look at this guy. He's humongous. And he's got the tinted sunglasses on. I'm looking up at him. And, and he's like, Ugh. but he just keeps going. They didn't really talk much back then if you met him like walking in. Now, this is this is back in like 80, 81 when Hogan yeah. was was a heel in the WWF. Yeah. And if you went to the Baltimore Civic Center for a card, 
they always, of course, did the main event in the beginning, like the, maybe the fourth or fifth match, or yeah, probably the fourth, because then they would do three after intermission, I think. But I remember the main events were always the tag team titles. And I remember uh, Gurria and, and whoever's partners were. But I remember one time it was Gurria and Martel. And there was no barrier around the ring. And I was probably like fourth row. And I, we, everybody would just run up to the ring. The lights would go up and nobody would let these guys out. And I grabbed him in the Gurria's hand because like, he was one of my favorites growing up. Thought he was like this cool dude, and I wouldn't let go of his. He was like the, he was like the Jim Palmer of the WWF. He was just like, you know, when I say that, I mean he was like a workhorse. This guy like worked every car you could imagine, win, lose, or draw. He was always there, you know. And he looked cool. He was like a good-looking guy back in the day. So, so was Jim Palmer. Yeah, he still is, but he's got a beard now. A little weird, but yeah. anyway. So I'm, I'm like holding on to, to, to Gurria's hand. He's like, oh, son, I have to say hello to other fans, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then, like, I met him at Cauliflower Alley, and I reminded him of it. And he's like, <laughs> and then I met him at the, um, at the Florida Fan Fest, and he's like, <laughs> you know. But he's, a, he's actually a nice guy, you know? He's, he's very proper and everything. He's a cool dude. I like him a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, Tony Gurria is one of those guys that gets mixed reviews as far as like what he's like outside the ring. But, you know, I, I guess he's like everyone else. And, and you don't know what it's like being Tony Gurria or being a, a pro wrestler that everyone recognizes. And you're constantly having people wanting to interact with you like that sounds cool for a day. That might sound cool for a week after right. a decade of it. You get tired. I mean, I remember Jim Garvin telling a story about, you know, how once he got out of the wrestling business, he cut all his hair off and he got to go to the mall and people actually left him alone. Yeah. And then he lost all his hair afterwards. Poor guy. (laughs) He is supposed to be a really cool guy. I've never met. I I met him briefly once, but he's a guy. Everyone has good things to say about. I got a story for you. You're going to like, all right. All right. In 1984. Okay. The end of 84, the fall of 84. I'm in my first year of college and I'm living at home and I got this buddy, this guy, Joel, he's, he looks like he's got big Joe Piscopo eyes and he smiles. He looks like the Joker and he's like the greatest dude. He was like my best buddy and he's hanging out with me and we're watching TV. And I said, you know what? We're going to wrestling tonight. I should call the hotels and see what wrestlers are staying where and see if I can get you know through to their rooms. And he's like, that's a good idea. So I get on the phone, and the first thing I call, I call up the, it was the Holiday Inn where a lot of the wrestlers stayed because I would see them when I parked there. And I would go, and anyway, so I call up and I go, yes, I'd like the room of Ron Garvin. And they said, sorry, we have no Ron Garvin here. And I'm like, okay. And I hang up, I call back a letter, say, I'd like this, and I call back, I'd like to speak to Ronnie Garvin. Can you connect me to Ronnie Garvin, please? And they're like, please hold. And this is like at three in the afternoon, two in the afternoon. Ronnie Garvin answers the phone. He goes, oh, and I go, Mr. Garvin. And he's like, he's like, yeah, who's this? And I go, this is Vincent, man. I'd like you to come up here to the WWF. Oh, and he, goes, man. he goes, I don't care if you're Vincent, man, or Egbert, man. Get the hell off my phone. I need my privacy. I need my sleep. God damn it. Boom. And he hangs up on me. 
Well, I caught him like five minutes later, and he goes, stop calling me, you son of a bitch. They hung up on me again. But it's a great story. I told Greg Valentine he couldn't stop laughing. Oh, man. I I don't think I've ever told this story on Stick to Wrestling before. I've told it on the 605. Uh, We were in Memphis in 1988, and... You'll never guess who decides to call Kevin Von Erich, right? And it's like three, <laughs> it's like three, four in the morning, and we're we're all up and just having fun, no no drugs or alcohol or anything. And I call Kevin Von Erich, and the guy in the hotel patches me right through, doesn't worry that it's like three and four in the morning. And I said, Hey Kevin, it's Jamie Dundee, brother. How you doing? And I had poor Kevin Von Erich on the phone for an hour. And I told him, I'm asking him, you know, what's the best places in wrestling to to score girls? Uh, I told him I had a girl with me who was a big fan and that she wanted him to carve his initials onto her back. And he's like, Oh no, man, I don't want to do that. That's okay. <laughs> that voice. <laughs> I had him on the phone for an hour and I remember the first thing I tell the, the group of people around me, don't anyone laugh, bite your arm off before you laugh, before you mess up my call. And as soon as I say, I'm Jamie Dunn, this is Jamie Dundee, brother. How you doing? One guy laughs. I'm like, and Kevin didn't hear it. <laughs> so it came close and I was a real jerk for doing this. I, I wish I hadn't. I told Kevin that his early morning flight had been moved to a mid-afternoon flight and go ahead and sleep. And I forget who got who dragged him out of bed just in time for the flight. But it, it was a good time, and I'm not making this up. I have witnesses in the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group who were present for this. Um, so, Kevin, I'm sorry. That was a, an immature 21-year-old, 22-year-old thing of me to do. <laughs> anyway, now that we're... Any any more prank phone call stories from you, Neil? Let me think for a second. Um, <laughs> I mean, wrestling related. We don't want to go into the other okay, stuff. I'm not going to tell you about the time I called the kid that was in my homeboy that I didn't like. But um, <laughs> that went out with my that went. Never mind. I'm going to keep that to myself before I get in trouble. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, let me think. Not any more prank calls, but just some more like chance meetings with wrestlers. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think for a second now. I remember I met Slick outside the Baltimore arena and he's wearing like this green windbreaker with the snaps on it, you know, like they wore like, like the everybody, not everybody, but people that wore windbreakers warm and before they, they, they were like too cheap. The They weren't, they weren't like uh members only. They were like the cheaper kind. Oh, I remember those. Every, yeah. every football coach had one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's got this green one there. And he's talking to some girl, and he's like, hey, babe. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Nice. He's like, you want to go out and get some Italian food? And my buddy's like, I like Italian food. And he's like, (laughs) I ain't talking to you. I want to go and get some Italian food, man, with her. Not you, with her. And it was, like, the funniest thing because my – he, this dude I took with me was, like, my little brother. So if I'm, like, 18, he was, like, he was, like, 12. And he was, like, a little brother to me, and we're still great friends. But it was like the funniest thing. He's like, no, you man. And let's see what else. Um, I can't even think of anything. But we thought, oh, Little Little Italy. My wife just went, Little Italy. I got to tell you about Little Italy. I was in, you know how they all go to Sabatino's. That was like, oh, yeah. All right. 
Let me tell you first thing. Sabatino's, it's okay, but it's not the greatest. You can get better Italian in a lot of places, but it's a touristy place. But we would all go there. And I just remember on, on one occasion, I was sitting next to a table with um, the Florida, not Florida, the Philly promoter dude, Goodhart. Joel Goodhart. Remember Joel that? Goodhart, yeah. He was sitting with us with two girls. And we're like, Philly wrestling is awful. You know, it's like, you know, like three other guys. And we're just like talking about this crap. And he's like looking at us and he's getting all pissy. And well, that was the end of that story. But let me get to the better story. I'm in Sabatino's, and in the table to the left of me is Norman the Lunatic, Lex Luger, and Lex Luger, Sting, and Rick Steiner. Scott Steiner wasn't there. And they're sitting there eating, 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 and Norman's, like, telling, like, really gross jokes, like like bodily function jokes, and I'm getting grossed out. And all the other wrestlers are in the place, and we we see Eddie Gilbert. I followed Eddie Gilbert into the bathroom, and he's, like, next to me. And I'm like, hi, Eddie, how you doing? He's like, I'm okay. And I'm like, good, good, good. You enjoying bottom? He's like, yeah, it's okay. And then I asked him something that's highly inappropriate, which I won't bring up now. But I went back to the table, and I, and Luger looks at me, and I look at him, and I, we make eye contact. And I said, Lex, will you be taking uh, will you taking uh, part in the um, – the open door policy of world-class championship wrestling. Oh my God. And he looks at me and he goes, who is this goof? (laughs) And I was like, Oh, I'm just a fan, (laughs) but it was kind of cool. I looked over and I saw, I think it was flair. Maybe, maybe Sullivan was with them. And they were running around together. Yeah. There was like, there was like all these little pockets and wrestlers, all at different tables. And it was like the coolest thing. And I'm just like sitting there being a jerk, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Like most wrestling fans can do when they're having fun. No, you see that maybe this is why, like, you know, I, I tended to get along with everybody because I didn't ask them if they were taking advantage of world-class championship wrestling's open door policy. That is so yeah. funny. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm going to ask him a question. That's like the, the dumbest question this guy's been asked in years who has, and he has no idea what I'm talking about. And I just remember Norman stuffing his face with pasta. And I'm like, this guy's my hero, you know, <laughs> I like it. I remember when I was walking across the street from the parking lot and I saw Wahoo McDaniel and I shook his hand. I'm shaking my hand, like, hand, like I'm the most nervous kind of, I'm like, hi, Wahoo. And he's like, calm down, kid. It's okay. It's okay. And he was real nice too. Yeah. Wahoo is a guy. There are a lot of stories about Wahoo out there that Wahoo wasn't always very nice. Like supposedly if you pissed Wahoo, if you asked Wahoo McDaniel if he's going to take advantage of world class's offer, he might have knocked you out. So I'm glad you picked Luger. Or he would have shot me. But here's the story. Yeah. Here's a story, and it's true. I'm DJing in this nightclub, and who walks in together? The Undertaker, Yokozuna, and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. And they're hanging out, and they're like the. You know, I go to Undertaker, I come down from the booth, I'm like, oh my god, look who's here. Go to the Undertaker, and I'm like, hi, hi, Undertaker, are you the real Undertaker, or are you the fake Undertaker? Oh, no. During that, and he goes, I'm the Undertaker. You nice. know, voice. And Yokozuna's got the thing in, the, in his hair, and his hair's all pulling up, and like some girl like walked by and pulled his hair, pulled the thing out, and his hair went like, came out of the ponytail. 
he was all pissed. And Jim the Anvil's just sitting there pulling on his beer, drinking beer. But it was like awesome. Like they got to get to meet these guys, you know. Like what year was that? That that was like right during what was it 94, 95, maybe? During that whole feud between the uh the Undertaker and the fake Undertaker. Remember that? Yes, I do. We've discussed this on that on this show, unfortunately. It was yeah. It was right around that time. And it was Mark Calloway that I was talking to. I could oh, tell. Yeah. Because the other guy, I would have been almost bigger than. So, but I, they, they were cool. I mean, it's, I remember the talk in wrestling was that around that time, the WWF was having problem with clicks. Like you had the Nash Hall, Michaels, and uh, one, two, three kid, uh, Sean Waltman click. And then as a result of that, you had other cliques forming, one of which was The Undertaker, Yokozuna, and I forget who else. But, like, you know, they were, like, split factions in the WWF, and it was becoming a problem because, you know, obviously, I've said many, many times on the show, the wrestlers were never one big happy family, but you also don't want, you know, guys, you know, gangs of four not getting along with each other, and supposedly they had that problem. Let me tell you, if I were in a clique and it was in the wrestling business, I would be hanging out with Barry Horowitz, Brandon Rice, and Michael Herrick. If you know those guys. Brandon Rice gets a shout out, finally. How about Michael Herrick? I, Michael as well, that's right. I'm like thinking yeah. to myself, who's Michael Herrick? But, so you've met Barry Horowitz. I met Barry Har- Horowitz at the Florida Fan Fest, which you should be going to. You've got to come to the next one. It's not like a fan fest. It's fun. <laughs> Barry Horowitz, who supposedly is just about the toughest guy in the world, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share something with, with the Stick to Wrestling universe, okay. if I may. And All that right. is that I'm, I'm done flying. I'm done flying unless I absolutely have to fly because I'm just, I understand why TSA exists, but I would rather just drive places and enjoy myself there than have to deal with TSA ever again. And I, I understand why they're there, like I said, but I just don't want to deal with them. No more flying for me unless, you know, I okay. have to. Here's and what I, we'll do. You'll drive I, to Baltimore, we'll get in my car, and we'll drive down. <laughs> Maybe. I'm, I'm now yeah, I'm thinking I'm about you. this. Jamie will come with us in a heartbeat. There you go. I mean, yeah, it's so fun. The other side of it is, when I was when I was 16... I flew down to Orlando and drove a car. This was like a job I had to do from Orlando up to Nashua. And that was the longest. I mean, it was two days worth of driving, 12 hours one day, 12 hours of the other. And those are the two longest days of my life. So I don't even know about that, but I shall consider it, sir. You know what happened to me when I was 16? No. I was sick of school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. (laughs) Remember that song? (laughs) I remember Sean Cassidy when I was six, when I was in sixth grade, Sean was very popular with all the girls, but I don't remember. Is that like still rock and roll to me or something along yeah, those yeah, lines? There you go. It, all it right. Was like, it was like the flip side to, to do run, run, run. Lou knows <laughs> it. Lou was a big fan back then. Of course he was. I don't think he was old enough in real life. So I mean, who else are you? Have you encountered? I mean, this is interesting to me because I used to go down to Baltimore and do the exact same stuff you were doing, except not asking about world-class right. open 
Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'll bet you and I were in the same in the same place at one point, like eighty seven or eighty eight. You were you were probably at the urinal to the right of me, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because see. I was I've been around the Baltimore Civic Center, you know, seeing random wrestlers and getting my picture with them. I mean, I remember Rick Steiner. I remember the Warlord. Uh, I mean, the Warlord was such a giant human being. I mean. Uh, you know, I've been around wrestlers, and this guy was huge for a wrestler. I'll tell you, one of the nicest dudes I ever met was uh, Brad Armstrong. Oh, yeah. They did, they did this thing when one of the cards, when the NWA came to Baltimore, and they had, there's a place that's called Ocean City Fries, which is like this big deal in Baltimore back in the day. Yeah. And this guy at a mall, he had Ocean City Fries. He owned the, the company. He brought, he was a big wrestling fan and he brought in like Ronnie Garvin, Brad Armstrong, and I forgot who else to this mall. And I'm like shaking his hand, talking to him for like 15 minutes. He was the nicest guy. I also met Hustler Rip Rogers. Rip Rogers is one of the most amazing people I have ever been around. He likes potato skins too. I watched him eat potato skins (laughs) at the Fridays in Vegas. At the hotel, not our hotel, but a hotel. We weren't there together. It's what I'm trying to say. But anyway, I met, uh, I met him and Bob Roop in the same car back in 84 when Georgia had kind of exploded and became championship wrestling from Georgia, the offshoot. And they were wrestling in, uh, what's his name? Bob Roop was star warrior and. I said, Rip Rogers, Seymour, Indiana. And he was like, he was all happy and everything. Yes, that's where I'm from, Seymour, Indiana. And then, of course, I never got to talk to him again until um, till 2019, you know, in Vegas. But he was a he was super nice guy. He is a super nice guy. He's, he's a unique personality. I have Rip Rogers stories that I wouldn't dream of sharing on this right. show. But he's a really cool guy. And he. He played high school football with John Mellencamp. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and I, I found that out, of course, after so I met Diane. him. But You know, he knows Diane. Right? He's <laughs> he must. Hang out at the Tasty Freeze, yeah. Yeah, you better watch out if you find that guy at the Tasty Freeze. There's going to be nothing but trouble. <laughs> you want to know who's a real nice guy? Um, Rick, Rick McCord. Rick, Rick McCord, I remember him. The blonde guy, and he was the one that was supposed to go against Flair when Lawler interrupted the whole thing, or was it the other way around? Uh, it, w- it was Lawler and who was- interrupted the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and it was Rick McCord, and this guy, I met him at Cauliflower Alley, and he is like the nicest, sweetest guy. Has uh, He's got a successful business. Normally, he parts his hair on the side, but for Cauliflower Alley, he parts it right down the middle, so he looks the same from, like, 30 years ago, and he's hanging out with me, and we're talking, and he's showing me all these pictures, like, from his whole career on his phone, and, like, he's just so humble and so nice, and he won. They do, like, they, 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 they do like a, a raffle for, like, I don't know how much it is a ticket to win. A replica, a replica NWA belt with the red leather from the old days. The Briscoe belt. Yeah, he won it. And he was so happy. And he put it on. I said, you finally won a championship. And he Uh-oh. was like, so happy. 
that guy, I don't know if you know him on Facebook or anything, is like the sweetest, greatest guy. He's such a good guy. Who is this? Rick McCord. Oh, okay. I thought we moved on from, from Rick McCord. Oh, okay, Rick McCord we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I remember that angle. Uh, Lawler comes out and he's like, you know, telling Flair, now that's Rick McCord. He's a good young wrestler, but you're not going to impress the girls in Memphis by beating Rick McCord. But if I got in there and I know I have no chance against you, Rick, you're going to impress all the girls. And Rick's just like, yeah. you're giving me this Southern jive, aren't you? And it was yeah. like one of the greatest angles of all time. I have to remember to put that on the Facebook page. Yeah. And Sullivan is a great guy. Kevin Sullivan. He was on the floor, on the elevator with us, and he had, he was like two rooms away. And he was just like a really nice guy too, really down to earth. So, yeah, I was, I like, I was like, but go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say I remember meeting Kevin in Baltimore and just saying that you know, are you really from are you really from Lexington? Because I'm really from North Attleboro, and he's like, yeah, I'm from Lexington. But he was on his way somewhere, and sometimes the guys just don't have time to chat. Yeah, you know who's also really great is is JJ Dillon. I can't, oh, yeah. I can't say enough good things about that guy because I first met him at the Cauliflower Alley in 19 and he's, and he's, you know, he's just this nice granddaddy, granddad kind of type guy, you know, and he's just so, he's just nice. And then I met him again and I talked to him and I met him again in Richmond, Virginia when I, when I met like, uh, I met Cornette and the Midnights, all three Midnights and the, the the Rock and Roll and all these guys, and he was super nice there. And then I met him again in Florida, and he is just like, he is such a good guy. I mean, what a good guy, you know? Let, let me give you my little J.J. Dillon story. I used to love getting my picture taken with the wrestlers. This is like you know, when I first started getting the Observer. This is like 87, 88. And if, if you... Here's a t- here's a tip. I don't know what it, what it's like now, but back then, if you wanted to get your picture taken with a wrestler, say this: go walk up, say something like, you know, uh, Mr. Anderson, can I get my picture taken with you really quick, right? right. And I I went up to JJ. I'm like JJ, can I get my picture taken with you really quick? And he, and he just kind of looks at me. He goes, don't worry, it doesn't have to be really quick. I'm like, wow, thank right. you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I, I mean, I didn't hold him up because he was on his way up to his room. But, um, yeah, he was he was nice enough to say that to me. Yeah, it's it's like it's a relief when they're really nice. It's like, oh, my God, this guy's like, yeah. such a nice guy. Wait, you know, it's different if you go to Cauliflower Alley or a convention. I mean, you're there to mingle. You're there to interact. Like, if you're on the road like these guys were sometimes wrestling as many as, as nine towns in a week, and that's not an right. exaggeration. I mean, you're not only are you worn out, but you just want to get from, you know, getting your hotel room at the desk to getting to your room and, and, and chilling out until you get to the arena. So, I mean, I get it if guys just, you know, aren't in the mood but it, it, when they're on the road. But I mean, if you're at a convention, it's kind of different. Yeah. And the, I don't go to those big, crazy conventions. I go to these little ones. Or I go to Cauliflower Alley because if I'm going to spend money to hang out with these dudes and talk to them, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be rushed by somebody in the line behind me. Yeah, yeah. I want. And I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you who my favorite is though. Is is Corny? I love Jim Cornette. This guy is, you know, deep down is is, is sweet. He's a nice guy. He's a good person. He's got the acid tongue or whatever. You know, he he does his thing. 
But you know what? He's he's always friendly to me, and I've met him. And it's like if if if, if it wasn't for COVID, it it messed up plans that we were all going to hang out. You know, maybe one or two times. And he's such a good guy, and and I can't tell you enough. I mean, like I, I had a little puppy, Logan, my little white pomeranian. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that happened, man. That's, oh. I know that's an awful feeling. It was the worst. And and what did what did Corny do? Like he he went out of his way and and he made like a a, a contribution and like to his rescue and all that. And I mean that that that, that goes a long way with me. And he's yeah. such a good, and that's like a big deal, you know. There's some wrestlers with some really big hearts, I'll tell you. No, uh, definitely. And, you know, well, I mean, we're, we're unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up soon. I'm having a great time. It, 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 I, I have uh, more than once, like three or four weekends in my life, hung out with Jim Cornette, who is just, you know, the funniest guy. You'd love to be around him. And part of the little crew that, like, got to hang out was Dave Meltzer. And just sucks that those two are not getting along anymore. I mean, they have, they have such a long history and, you know, I, I wish those two would mend fences. I really do. Me too. And, but you know what? It's over something that, you know, they're, you know, I, it's, it's, I don't even watch wrestling now, so I can't form an opinion. You know, Meltzer, he has his opinion. Jim has his, I respect them both, but you know what? My comment is that I love them both. Yeah, you know, I used to listen to that. I used to listen to, uh, to um, the the Iada show. Remember that the Iada show? It was part of my life. Yeah, every every day. That's when I was like, that's when I um said I need some videotapes, John, and you and I ordered a whole bunch of them from you. <laughs> a lot of Georgia and Mid South, St. Louis, even Kansas City, if you can believe it. But I was well, you were that guy. Yeah, I was the one guy. <laughs> By the way, the, it, there was no audio. No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> but like, I was just like, you know, I forgot what the hell I was talking about. So let's let's continue on. Well, I was going to say Kansas City. You probably got audio, but no picture because they're taping wrestling matches in the dark. Well, we were we're, we're lucky for that, right? <laughs> <laughs> we very well may well be Central States. It was not exactly a favorite of mine. I mean, you wish you wish every wrestling promotion was better. You don't want to sit there and rag on central states, but my God, that was not a good promotion. I remember, I remember my first newsletter I ever got in my life was a Tom Burke newsletter from the, I guess it was in the late seventies, mm-hmm. sent them a check, got the newsletter. And this was like the coolest thing. He had results from all over the place. I didn't know any of these people, and I'm like, oh my god, this is this is awesome. Then I got to meet him, and he's like the nicest guy too. He is a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had done what you did a long time before I did. As everyone knows, I've mentioned. I feel like I say it once a week. Like end of '86, I started getting the Observer. I wish in 1979, when I was reading one of Melby's magazines or something like that, I had you know just gambled on getting a newsletter. I mean, like, you know, I have all the back issues of the after magazines. So why not just try something else yet? I never did. I got the right. observer uh, uh, by a coincidence. I didn't even order it. And you know what the greatest thing, there is nothing better than the wrestling that we grew up with. Nothing better. It just, it was the best, man. We had the best. We had guys that would go out there, beat the crap out of, like these nobodies or whatever who were who were good great 
people probably beat the hell out of them and at every week and it was like the greatest thing ever it was like we had it was great you know I, you know what? We talked about this last week when uh, Dan Farron was the guest. I mean, I think every generation thinks that the wrestling that they first started watching was the best. And I, I still think that. I mean, I know that WWF wrestling was not exactly fast paced. Their, their television wasn't fast paced. It was usually, you know, a, a mismatch. Then you get to the arena. And as I found out 40 years ago, it's not, you know, non-stop action there's a lot of headlocks going on but it, it it was still the wrestling i grew up on it was still the wrestling i loved and guys like you know steve king johnny rods frank williams uh paul moret whoever else those guys were part of our lives they they you know they they really were i remember going to wrestling with my dad in 1980 it was duncan versus backland in the main event and hogan in the third match defeated dominic Danucci. And I remember walking through the, the parking garage across the street from the Civic Center and my dad singing, Dominic DiNucci, Dominic <laughs> DiNucci. Yeah, he loved his name. It was like the greatest thing then was Dominic DiNucci, you know. And, and, I got and, no, go ahead. And, and Rene Goulet was there. And, and my mom was with me that night. My mom, my mom and dad and my mom goes, he looks like he smells. And I'm oh. I just never forget that. That was so I, funny. I have heard that Rene Goulet is another one of those really nice guys, but for whatever reason, when he came back to the WWF, oh, beginning of 1980, I just found him to be the most boring person, the most boring wrestler alive. I thought he was he was boring in the ring. I think he had a, a less than charismatic right. uh, look to him. But anyway... This is always the fastest hour of my week. It has flown by. Neil, you were a great guest. You're going to be back. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Also, we have a special guest this week on Stick to Wrestling who is going to wrap up the show for us. You all know who he is. Let's get him on. This is JR. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thanks, Lou Kippelman, the producer that does a slobber knocker of a job on this show. A job. Otherwise, it would sound uglier than a bowling shoe. Good God almighty. He's tougher than a $2 steak. He stomps a mud hole in it and walks dry. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Look at the carnage. Business, business is about to pick up. This concludes our podcast day.